All right, Uh, let's open our Bibles this morning to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6. We're going to finish, Lord willing, the chapter today. There's a lot here. And remember, Jesus is speaking to his disciples in this area that we see behind us. This is a picture that I took in uh, 2020, right on the uh, side of the hill, side of the mountain, really. It kind of slopes down in the Sea of Galilee. And this is the uh, western shore of Galilee, and they call that the Mount of Beatitudes because we believe that that is the location uh, where Jesus gave what we're reading to you, uh, what I'm reading to you today, um, where that occurred. And so far, Jesus has been uh, talking to his disciples just about the, the inward reality of our relationship with Christ. And uh, it's very easy for us, and it was very easy for the Old Testament saints, specifically the scribes and the Pharisees, they would go through the motions, they would go through the externals, and, and they were very good at it. And, and, and like you and I, we have this ability to be chameleons. Wherever we go, we can, we can fool man, we can put on an air and, and act a certain way and fill the role, if you will, act the part. But God See, understands the, where we are really at. And aren't you glad that all of us don't have the, the same um, mind of God in the sense that he can see right through us? He knows our motives. He knows what's, what's, um, what is stirring us to do anything, whether it's good or ill. Our, our motives are, are very plain in his sight. And so that's why he goes through this, these three chapters, five, six, and seven, we call the the Beatitudes or the Sermon on the Mount. And the Beatitudes are part of that, obviously. And last couple of weeks, we've been spending some time in this model prayer that Jesus gave to us, just as an aid, I I believe, and also uh, to to gain an understanding about the things that we ought to incorporate in prayer. And whether you uh, appropriate those things in your prayer life is up to you, but I would encourage you to take a look at it. And whether it's in the right order or not, I don't know that that makes so much of a difference, but I think it's important to start off in worship, and we talked about that, and just to to honor God for who he is before I bring to him my laundry list of requests and supplications. And so it's it's good for us to do, but as we get further along in this, we're going to pick up in verse 16, and notice what he says. Jesus says, moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, For they disfigure their faces, that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, notice, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place. And I love that. Have you found the secret place? Do you have a secret place that you go to? And it may not be a, an enclosed room where the lights are dim or the, the atmosphere is just right, but do you have a secret place? It could be in a car. It could be on your commute to work. That can be a secret place. But notice, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. So do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon, in all of his glory, was not uh, arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass and the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you have need of all these things, but here it is, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own troubles." What an awesome thing, and what a strong encouragement and even um, exhortation the Lord gives to us through this passage. You know, worrying is something that we do a lot of. And maybe seeking treasures in heaven rather than treasures on earth, maybe that's also something that we need some help with. We live in a physical world, and everyone is, uh, unfortunately, we're, we're tied to physical things, but Jesus wants us to be aware of that there is something more important than the physical, tangible things that we have on this earth. There's treasures in heaven awaiting us. And those treasures, I believe, uh, based on the scripture, and we'll look at this today, are are those things that that we trust the Lord in, to do in and through our lives. The things that we allow him to do, that he allows, we allow him to work through us and in us to reach a world that is lost, to love people. And today, I don't know if, I think you can understand, today is a day we really need to love people because right now people are frazzled, they're, they're struggling, they're at the, at the edge, they're at the limit. People are losing their minds. Does anybody have one of those ring doorbells? This morning I got a notice at 3 o'clock in the morning this person's ring doorbell goes off and some woman at 3 o'clock in the morning is kind of running around in in, in this person's yard and then then leaves and then goes into somebody else's yard. And I thought to myself, and you can see her on the video and, and she looks very, she's lost it. The people today have lost it. They're on the edge. They're stressed out. They don't know what's going on, and yet God wants us, his church. We are the only ones who have the repository 
of the Spirit of God in us, and he wants to use you and I to reach people like that, to reach people who are struggling. As we look at these final verses, this final half, really, I see verse 16 through 18 that we read here concerning fasting. I I see that really belonging to verses 1 through 15. So really, this chapter could be broken up into two halves, and it became more apparent to me this week that verses 1 through 18 really speak of our motivation in giving and and, in prayer and in fasting. And verses 9 through uh, 34, which we're going to look at today, is our relationship or attitude to material things. And I don't know about you, but I need a a, a realignment. I need a tune-up in my attitude concerning these things. Does that ring a bell with you? I always need a tune-up because I'm just, I'm not perfect. (laughs) And I know neither are you. And yet here we are together. So be encouraged and encourage one another as we walk in this life together, as we walk in Christ together. Um. In verse 16 through 18 that we read about fasting, Jesus is still focusing on this inward reality, uh, specifically when we fast. And fasting may not be a big deal to us Westerners, especially here in America, but it was to those religious cultures in the Middle East and the Far East. You know, the Jews and the Muslims, they took fasting. That was part of their culture. It was part of their life. But here in America, we really don't fast that much. And we'll look at the reasons for fasting. Biblically, what does the Bible have to say about fasting? And I'm hoping to make a, not spend a great deal of time on that, but it's something we haven't really talked about in a long time. So let's look at verse 16. Notice what it says. Moreover, when you fast. Notice he didn't say if you fast, but when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say, they have their reward. But notice verse 17, but when, again, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to be, uh, to men to be fasting, but to your father who is in the secret place and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And really this, these three verses, really the concept is the same as we've been looking at with prayer and with giving. Again, it's all about the inward, not about the outward. And again, we don't hear or talk about fasting that much in the American church, but maybe we need to be um, maybe we need to be loosed from any bondage. Because part of fasting is to is is for that to to loose bondages that maybe you have. It's also to discern the Lord's direction and will for your life. And I believe that more than ever, we need to be loose from bondage and we need direction. There are many people today that are struggling with addictions. It could be a a drug addiction. It could be a sex addiction. It could be cocaine, heroin. It could be gambling. It could be any host of other vices. And if you have any of those things, have you really fasted about that? Have you fasted and prayed? Have you taken the time to really seek the Lord and and to go without certain things to get your mind and your focus on Christ. 
and to discern his heart and to know his will. It's something that I would encourage you to do from time to time, especially if you're dealing with those kinds of things. This word fast in the, in the Hebrew and in the Greek, it pretty much means the same thing. It means to abstain from food, and, and it can mean that too. And what is the purpose of fasting? Is it just to deny ourselves food so that we can lose weight and look better in a swimsuit? No, fasting has nothing to do with that. We know that. Is it to lose a few pounds? But what is its purpose? We're going to look at that. In the Old Testament, fasting is mentioned 17, uh, in 17 different verses. And we're not going to go into any detail of this. But although there were times of obligatory fasting, such as on the Day of Atonement for the Jews, or when Moses in Exodus 34, he didn't eat or drink for 40 days, miraculously sustained by the Lord in his presence. I wouldn't encourage you to go on a 40-day fast without water because you're probably not going to make it. People have done 40-day fasts and they have lost a lot. But 40 days without water is an entirely different matter. But Moses being in the presence of God, no doubt sustaining him for that, because all he wanted to hear was the voice of God, and there was nothing distracting him. I don't know if you've ever fasted before, but when you fast after about the third day, your body makes no noises. It's got the point. I'm not being fed. I'm not digesting. There's nothing happening. And you'll be surprised how quiet your system gets. And all of a sudden, you're like, oh, wow, I can really hear God. <laughs> when I'm in prayer, there's nothing distracting me. My hunger's gnawing at me a little bit. But the first time we hear of this voluntary fasting is in Judges chapter 20, verse 26, when there was a battle between the northern ten tribes and the southern two tribes, and uh, Israel from the north, they, they came down and, and they were fighting against uh, Benjamin, and they thought it would be a quick battle, but they lost 40,000 men in one day. The, the men of Benjamin were much more skilled than they and so what did they do? They got together and they fasted at Bethel because of their, they were mourning because they had lost so many men. And so mourning is one of those things that you do or that you fast, you know, one of the things that you do when you fast, it's because you're mourning for something. In 1 Samuel 7, verse 6, all of Israel fasted for a day when Samuel took them to task about their idolatry. And so the whole nation, being wounded of their guilt, they decide, not to, they decide to fast for an entire day. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, we know that David's firstborn child from Bathsheba was sick. And, and remember, the child ultimately died. And when, when it finally died, as David was there before the presence of the Lord, once he heard that the child was died, he got up and he, he, he had been fasting. And then finally, he, he gets up, he washes his face, he gets something to eat, and he puts on a fresh set of clothes, and his servants are wondering, David, what's wrong with you? And what did he say? He says, why, why should I fast? Now, now that the child is dead, can I bring him back to me? I can't. He was in sorrow over the impending death of this child, no doubt as a result of his sin with Bathsheba, God judging that sin. And that child is in glory right now. But it wounded David and Bathsheba. And he says, I can't bring him back to me. I don't need to fast anymore. I have, God has answered. He's answered. The child is dead. 
I can't bring him back to me, but I know I'm going to see him. A pretty profound statement on many levels. But in 1 Kings chapter 21, Ahab, he even mourns when Elijah gave him news about God's impending judgment on him, his house, and on Jezebel. Nehemiah, chapter 1, verse 4. Nehemiah fasting and praying, mourning for many days concerning the condition of Jerusalem and the distress of those who are left from the captivity. When they went to Babylon, he was fasting and praying, completely heartbroken. So mourning is, is something that um, happens, and, and we fast as a result of mourning. But we also, look, uh, we also fast for direction and discernment. You recall in Ezra chapter 8, verse 23, it says that when they, uh, this is when Artaxerxes, Langemanus, was giving the Jews freedom to go back to Israel, back to Judah, back to Jerusalem, to rebuild their temple. And he gave them all the supplies that they needed. And so they had all of this stuff to take back, very valuable things, money and other things. And remember, Ezra prayed and he, and, and he knew he needed protection. And he felt, he felt a little sheepish about asking the king for a, an entourage to go with them, like a, a, calvary, a cavalry to uh, help them and protect them on the way. And instead of doing that, they fasted and prayed, and God gave them the answer and what to do, and they did it. So looking for direction, not only when we're mourning over the loss of somebody's life or maybe mourning over our sin, those are reasons we fast, but also to, to, for discernment, as we saw in Ezra, and also in Esther. When Esther asked the Jews at Shushan in the palace, she asked them to fast and pray for three days before she went into Xerxes, her husband at the time, but she couldn't go in unless he asked her to come in. So she was approaching the king without an invitation, which was tantamount to a death sentence for anyone. And thank God he put out the scepter when she came through those doors. She knew very well that her life was on the line, but she prayed and asked God for direction, for wisdom. And finally, God, he rebukes also for the wrong motives of fasting. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 58. <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 58. Excuse me. God is very concerned about motives in everything that we do, in our giving, in our praying, in our fasting. And notice what he says here in Isaiah 58. He says, cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet, tell my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as a nation that did righteousness and they did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinances of justice, they take delight in approaching God. Why have we fasted, they say, and have you not seen? So this is the people of, of Judah crying out to God. We have fasted, and have you not seen, God, what we're doing? And he says, why have, and they say, why have we afflicted our souls, and you take no notice, God? In fact, the day of your fast, God says, you find pleasure and exploit all your labors. 
Indeed, you fast for strife and debate, and and you strike with the fist of wickedness. You will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. And here it is in verse 5. Is it a fast that I have chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Excuse me. Would you call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? And the obvious answer is no. And yet that's the way they were treating it. They, they were treating it like, you know, they were afflicting their soul. They were doing all, they, their motives weren't right in their fast. And our motives can be wrong too when we fast. Sometimes people fast so that they can get God to do what they want. Well, if I fast, I, I twist God's arm. If I, if I show him how much I'm, I'm able to go without, you know, McDonald's. <laughs> I can go without, you know food and I can prove to him my, you know, my love by not eating. Well, go ahead and eat. You can prove your love to God without that. We don't try to twist God's arm. Rather, we try to get ourselves completely void of any distraction and take that time that we would normally be eating and having meals and devote that to prayer. It's really that simple. <clears throat> but notice in verse 6, here is what Here's why we fast. Notice, is, is this not the fast that I have chosen? And here it is. This is God's method, <laughs> what he wants. It's to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out? When you see the naked that you cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh, then your light shall shine, will break forth like the morning, and your healing shall spring forth speedily, and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard, and then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, here am I, here I am. That's why we fast, to loose bondages. to undo the heavy burdens, to break the yoke of things that we're struggling with. But people were using fasting for all kinds of different things. In the New Testament, we even see fasting. Jesus, after his temptation, or after his, um, his baptism, he was tempted in the desert for 40 days, and he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, just like Moses did. In Matthew 17, we see that prayer and fasting uh, was needed to deliver someone from an evil influence or even an evil spirit. Can you imagine that? Somebody's demon-possessed or being um, influenced by demonic entities, demonic spirits, and, and to fast and pray for that person. I would say in Monroe County, there's a lot of people that may be possessed by devils, but certainly are being oppressed, many of us in this room even. Let's be honest with one another. And, and if something's really hitting you that's really significant and you need to be rid of it, why don't you ask a couple people to be praying for you and fast with you for a day, two days, three days, whatever it may be, and just intercede for you on, on your behalf. We look in Luke 2, 37, Anna, a prophetess, she served the Lord Uh, for many, many years by prayer and fasting. And people in the New Testament fasted as well to receive instruction from the Lord to discern his will. And we see this 
um, in Acts chapter 10 and verse 30 and Acts 13, 10 and 14, verse 23, just seeking the Lord for direction. And so what are the reasons that we can fast today? Well, we, when we are seeking to be loosed from a bondage, interceding for someone else to be loosed from a demonic oppression or an evil spirit, <laughs> when we are seeking the Lord's will and direction for our lives, and you can fast for a day, you can fast for two days, maybe three days, maybe for an entire week, until the Lord releases you from that or until you have discerned what the Lord's will is. And you can, it's not just food that we can fast from, you know, maybe fasting from the news or social media, fasting from Facebook would be a really good thing, fasting from Twitter and Instagram and all those other things. Fast from news. Take a break. Really, you, you, you really can't handle all the news. I know this because I can't either. It just, it colors me. Does, it, does anybody, can anybody relate? All it does is make me angry. All it's, all it's doing is feeding me stuff that just makes me more inflamed. It would be better for me to fast from that. That I could have a clear, instead of being filled with anger, I could be filled with the Spirit of God. <laughs> I need that, do you? Oh Lord, help us. We're so distracted. Fast from the things that are just taking a hold of you, gripping you, keeping you from the main thing. And that's time with Christ, time in his word, time for him letting to change your heart. Do you want that? I really do. And if we do really want it, then we need to make decisions about our life, don't we? And I would encourage you not just to let these things roll off your shoulder this morning. Seriously, take a look at these things in your life. Fast from them because they're not doing you any good. And, and be honest with yourself. Is this really helping me or is it actually drawing me away from Christ? And if it's drawing you away, the natural thing is, the right thing to do is to say, Lord, I need to be done with this because it's killing me. It's, it's like a cancer inside of me. I need to rid myself of it. But when we do fast, notice he doesn't say if, but when you fast, don't be like the men, don't, be, don't, be, don't do it to be seen of men. And that's what the whole point of that whole thing was. Don't do it to be seen. But notice, let's go back in, in our text now in verse 19. Jesus goes on now and says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures or literally deposits on earth. Think of that. You get paid, you make a deposit in the bank. Well, God says, well, I've got things I want to give you and things I want to do through your life so that you can make deposits in the bank of heaven. And the interest rate is amazing. You might get, what, 0.5%, 5% maybe in some things. God says, oh, the things I got for you are compounding interest second by second, exponential compounding interest your bank account is loaded and you're going to be rewarded for those things do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth notice where moth and rust destroy and it all destroys doesn't it all those beautiful things that we buy the house and the boat and the motorcycle and all these things the the chain gets rusty on the motorcycle then we got to buy a new chain we got to we got to fix up the boat and then there's barnacles growing underneath the boat well not here in in, in the lake but down in Florida they have it all I've seen it seen it been there you know but all these things you got to tend to them you got to keep them up and they possess us. I no longer possess them because 
I have many material possessions. Now I'm, I'm, they, I no longer have them, but they have a grip on me. But everything that we have is subject to decay. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So everything is subject to decay. It's everything subject. It's called the second law of thermodynamics. Everything is in decay. The, morning, the moment you were born, you started to die. It just takes 80 years to get there. Or maybe more if you're very fortunate. But you can't take it with you. Even though I've seen people who have, been, who have died and they get buried in their, you know, 1967 pink Thunderbird, you know, and people have done that. They get buried in their car and they, you know, it's happened. But you can't take it with you. That thing is going to rot in the ground and your spirit is going somewhere. Hopefully you chose Christ. But what Jesus says here in verses 19 and 20 seems like a straightforward command, but it's one that few people think about about this bank account in heaven, this treasure in heaven, and even in the church. Because see, God wants us to be content with the things that we have instead of always wanting more. And there's a curse to always wanting more. It never ends. The flesh is never satisfied. Once you get one thing, you want the next thing. Once you obtain this plateau, you got to go to the next plateau because so-and-so is on that plateau and I want to be like them. I want to be more important. I want to have this. I want to have that. They have this. Why can't I? I worked harder than them. I deserve that. And God's going, can you be content with things that you have? And this is something that we can actually learn. And Paul the Apostle learned this in Philippians chapter 4, verse 11. He said this, For I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everything and in all things I have learned, notice, both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. But notice what he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Maybe some of you have experienced that. I'm still in the process of learning that. But I am growing more content, and I'm, I'm learning that not having many things is a really good thing because I can't maintain it all. Isn't there something awful when you buy something, and then it sets in your garage, and you use it for a couple times, and then years go by, and you come back to it, and you're like, why didn't I just rent it? Now I got this thing that the oil is coagulated in it and the thing is completely messed up and it's, I might as well just toss it now because I can't start the thing. And I forgot to put the, you know, the fuel stabilizer in it and so you know, the whole thing is messed up now. Why? Things have us instead of us having things. In Hebrews 13 uh, verse 5 it says, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Yes, not being so firmly planted on the earth, but rather thinking about our treasures in heaven. For can be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's God speaking. He'll never leave us. In 1 Timothy, Paul says to him, he says, Now godliness, notice, godliness with contentment is great gain. Notice that godliness without the house in the Cayman Islands and all the fancy cars, that is great gain. No, he says godliness with contentment is great gain, and so few of us experience that. And the person who has found that knows the secret. And I am learning that. I'm not saying that I've learned it, but I'm learning that principle, and it's true. I don't really need a lot of things. I'm really happy with just my Bible, 
my iPad. Sorry. <clears throat> but I use it for different th- I use it for what I'm doing here. I don't play, you know, Candy Crush or anything like that. I'm content with my family. I'm content with my relationship with God. I'm content with very few things. I don't need a lot of things. This doesn't mean that we can't own nice things or even enjoy the fruit of our labors. We just need to be careful that our possessions don't possess us because God is concerned about our attitude toward money and material possessions. He knows that it can either be a blessing to us or it can be a curse. Have any of you wished, oh, I wish I had a million dollars? Well, if you had a million dollars given to you and fall out of the sky and land on your lap, you'd probably find within a couple days that you're going to be a mess, a nervous wreck, because now everybody knows you got the million, and all of a sudden, all the relatives that you never, you never saw before come to your door, and my, my dog died, and he needs to be buried in this casket now, and you know, Aunt Susie's got you know, this, and, and, and she needs this to happen, and she needs a lung and a, and a liver and a, and a kidney, and let's face it, Aunt Susie needs a lot, um, but you know, all these needs... And then all of a sudden, you're perplexed. You feel guilty for having this money and hanging on to it. it. It can become a curse. And then your own lusts are there. Well, I've always wanted this Harley Davidson. I've always wanted this house on the lake. But I feel guilty. And I want that grand piano right in the front as I enter with the glass windows and it's overlooking the bay. I want that grand piano right there. And, but I can't sit at the piano when I know that other people in my family are struggling. And you, see, you see how that can be a mess? The guilt? <laughs> I'd rather not have it. I'd rather just pray to God that he heals them because I can't heal anybody. It can be a blessing or a curse. What is it for you? The Lord's half-brother, James, said this. He says, Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver are cankered. And their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. That sounds like a good thing. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, they cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury, and you have fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. And I believe that's speaking more of of an unbeliever, really, but even as believers, we have to be careful how we do this. And and again, we can be grasping for riches and material things, but we cannot forget about our treasures in heaven. And I believe that these treasures in heaven refer to rewards or lack of rewards that we will receive at the Bema Seat Judgment immediately after the rapture of the church. We're going to be at the Lamb's Supper, and we're going to receive rewards for things that we have done or or, or, or lack of rewards. But we're still going to get to heaven. But I think what we do now matters, doesn't it? That's building treasure for heaven and and, and thinking heavenly-minded about things that I do here that affect that treasure pile there. That's what I want to start infusing. I want to start making deposits in that account. That's the more important account. Yes, Paul said, and you've heard me share the scripture, but I'm going to share it again. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10. 
According to the grace of God, Paul says, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it, but let each one take heed how he builds on it, for no other foundation can be laid than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones, or wood, hay, and stubble, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it. When we're before the Lord, it's going to be all apparent And it says that uh, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. Notice that you are not being tested by fire. Your works are being tested by fire. And those works that are born and of the Spirit of God, those are the things you're going to be rewarded. But all the things that I thought were good to do that really weren't led by the Spirit, I just felt they were good. Those things are going to burn up. I'm not going to be rewarded for those things. But if anyone, anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. And if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. When I get to heaven, I'm hoping that there are things in my account. I'm hoping my bank account is bursting at the seams. Not so I can use it for my own self, but that that I can lay it at the Lord's feet and say, Lord, if it wasn't for you, none of this would have happened in my life. And that's the truth. I don't have it in me to do any good thing. In fact, that's the reason I came to Christ, because I realized how decrepit and how sinful I was. It's because of that that brought me to Christ. It wasn't because I was a good guy and I just wanted to join a better team. No, I wasn't a good guy, and neither were you. None of us were good. I know you came this morning and you're thinking, I want to hear some good news. Well, you just heard some bad news. But what a feel-good church this is. Can't wait to come back next week and he can tell me how bad I am. Well, I'm bad too. But we got a great God. We got a great and loving Savior who loves you to pieces. He adores you, even with all the mess. Don't be discouraged. He loves you. Even amidst the trials and the tribulations, the total mess that your life is right now, he adores you and he paid the price to secure that relationship, regardless of your mess. Will you give your mess? Will you fast even? Will you pray to him and and ask him for help and for vision and direction? If it's really important to you, you're going to fast. Is it really important? Endeavor to do those things that are going to add to your treasure in heaven. And what are some of these treasures? I, st- I just started listing uh, about 10 things that, things that we could do. And there are many more. And this is not an exhaustive list by any means. But sharing the gospel wherever, whenever, and to whoever will hear. Helping out a neighbor in need. These are things that I can do to build treasure in heaven. Taking time to minister to shut-ins or those in nursing homes. Making hospital visits. Ladies, even volunteering to babysit for a mom who's overwhelmed with a bunch of kids so that she and her husband can go out on a date that they haven't done in three years. Or coming alongside a young person who doesn't have a parent. Helping someone out financially when they suddenly have an emergency. Being good examples to all, especially those in our own household. Guys, doing the dishes for your wife. (laughs) When you see the pile in the sink, do you just wait and let her do it or do you do it? Do it regularly when you can. Help fold the laundry when your wife's back is hurting. (laughs) Pick up your clothes on the floor, you slob, and, and put them in the clothes bin. 
Little things. Why? Because you care. Because you love her. Little things like this are tokens of love and God will reward you for those attitudes. And these are just some. Investing in your kids, your grandkids with time. Yes, with your time. Yes, you could go golfing, but your, your, your grandson has a baseball game today. And yes, you're working on your swing and you've almost got it perfected, but he's only going to go through that once. Go to the game. He needs help. He needs your wisdom. And when he's working a full-time job trying to save money to buy a car, are you willing to kick in a few hundred bucks to help him? Or maybe you have another car in the garage that you don't need anymore that's only got 3,000 miles on it. You've only taken it to bingo every Friday. And so maybe the best thing to do is just to give it to them. Get out the title and sign it over and say, happy birthday, grandson. (laughs) Help them out. They need it. Those kinds of things, treasure in heaven. And many, many other things. Notice that these treasures are not about self at all, and rather they're other-centered, aren't they? They're not about me, they're not about you. They are always serving, doing something other uh, for someone else, doing something that's other-centered. It's nothing to do with me at all. God loves it when we do stuff like that. And people love it too. And it encourages their faith. And don't we help each other when that happens? Verse 21, notice Jesus says, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And life has a way of exposing our true affections, doesn't it? It really does. And it's especially embarrassing if your affections or your, what you claim to be uh, doing is exposed in public or on, in a public way. And if you spend time with somebody long enough, you'll come to know what is near and dear to them. For some, it's their, their walk with Jesus. And that, hopefully, is the first thing that is near and dear to them is their walk with the Lord. But to others, it's only, only their family and their grandkids. For some, it's their 401k, their house at Grand Cayman, and their car collection. But circumstances have an interesting way of exposing our affections. Like the guy who takes his wife out to dinner and as they're approaching this fancy Italian sports car, there's a guy breaking into the car and he's smashing the window and another guy, another criminal is coming to harm the man's wife. And what does the guy do? He runs over to the car and and tries to keep the thief from breaking into his car. Meanwhile, his wife is getting harmed by some criminal. He exposed really where his treasure is. It's not in his wife. It's in that prized possession. It's in that gold, that gold calf that he's been putting money into. He drove her in that car to bring her to the dinner. But he proved that it's more valuable than she is. Where's your treasure? Be careful that our treasure is not in an idol. That it's not, it doesn't become an idol. In Colossians, it tells us that covetousness is idolatry. So where's my treasure? Jesus goes on in verse 22 and he says, the lamp of the body is the eye and if therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. This word good means a whole or clear or sound or uh, it it could also uh, mean generous. In verse 29 through 20 or 19 through 21, what does it really speak of? It speaks of a heavenly attitude, doesn't it? And so does this right here. 
If your eyes are fixed on heaven and on things that are good, your whole body will be full of light. Your whole outlook and the tenor of your life will be fruitful. Paul exhorts us in Philippians and he says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer, notice, and supplication, with thanksgiving. There's a wonderful word. With thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God and the God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. And here it is. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Is my eye single? Is it generous? Is it wholesome? Is it, is it pure? Or is my, my vision bad? Is my eye bad? But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore that light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Do you have a begrudging attitude? Is your eye evil? If your eye is evil, your vision will only be earthbound. You'll be selfish and begrudging and everything. I was thinking about Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4. Remember, Cain brought everything of the earth that he had made, and he brought this sacrifice, and it was all something very tangible, something that everyone could see and understand. And God refused that offering. And yet the bloody sacrifice that his brother Abel brought of the lamb and the blood and everything else like that, even though to the natural man, they're like, I'd rather have the fruit basket from Kittleburgers. No, they they look over here and they see this lamb that's bloody and it's a mess. And God says, I accept that. Because Abel had his mind on heaven because God was showing and revealing this plan of redemption. But his brother Cain was very content with the things of the earth and thought, I could bring God of the the toil, the sweat of my brow. God, look at these mangoes. They're beautiful. They're huge. They're bigger than the ones at Wegmans. They're like that big. And they're free. They're not $4.99 a pound or whatever it is. Are you allowing the Spirit of God through the Word of God and prayer to change your heart? Or are you unwilling? Are you one of those people where God, as it says in Jeremiah 18, he, he wants to put you on the potter's wheel. He wants to fashion your life. Are you willing to be put on that potter's wheel as he fashions, as he reaches down and pulls up all the impurities and just pulls it up and then he continues to mold and to shape you into something beautiful, right? That's what God wants to do. Are you willing to be put on the potter's wheel or are you resisting it? Every time the, the clay, you, is put on the potter wheel, you, you tend to kind of get off the wheel, You don't want anything to do with it. I don't want you to fashion me, God. I like the way I am. I like my sin. Leave me alone for heaven's sakes. You know, God will leave you alone. But he'll come back at different times in your life and knock on your door. How's that working out for you? How are your choices benefiting you? Are you happy? Are you happy that this guy's taking advantage of you and he tells you that he loves you and, oh, I believe in Jesus, but really he's going to the bars at night with his friends and he doesn't tell you about it. You know nothing about it. He's sleeping around, but, oh, he loves Jesus. Yes, and then, he, and then it, it, wake up. Are you unwilling or are you willing? And notice verse 24 
Jesus says, no one can serve two masters for either he will either hate the one or love the other or else he'll be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Again, this doesn't mean that you can't be wealthy because many of the Old Testament patriarchs were very wealthy, but their wealth never had them and that's the difference. That's the difference. And again, money is not the root of all evil, but the love of it is. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil. Money is immaterial. It's neutral. But your attitude toward it, what you do with it, we see this in the Old Testament. We don't have time to go into all of these, but if you look at Numbers 21, Balaam was a prophet that Balak, the son or the, the king of Moab, came to this man named Balaam who was a prophet. And he says, the children of Israel are coming out of Egypt and they're in my land. Will you come and curse them? And Balaam says, well, I'll tell you whatever the Lord tells me. So that night, as, as Balak sends an, an embassage to uh, Balaam and says, we'll give you money, we'll give everyone out. Just curse these people because I know that whoever you curse, God will curse. And Balaam says, well, whatever the Lord tells me. So the Lord that night tells him, don't go with these guys. Do not curse my people. So Balaam goes back and tells them, I can't do it. Well, we'll give you more money. We'll give you more money. And then they, they go back and they bring back more people. And they say, well, come with us. And Balaam says, well, let me ask God again. There's the problem. <laughs> Didn't God already tell him initially to not go? Why is he going to change his mind now? But God was willing to test Balaam and says, you know what, Balaam? You're a character. I've been wrestling with you for some time. You're a compromised, money-loving prophet. You're no prophet to me. But you go with them. But you only do what I say. And God had his way, but Balaam was still an unrighteous man who was bent on riches. He loved the, the wages of unrighteousness, Peter tells us. And we see the rich young ruler in Matthew chapter uh, 19. I've done all these commandments, but what, what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, the, the thing you need to do is to sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. And that man went away sorrowful because his treasures and his heaven, he didn't have treasures in heaven. He was only fixed on the earth. He just wanted those riches, his inheritance from his father. Because everything had, unfortunately, have you heard that, that saying that everyone has their price? It's true. What are you willing to give up? What profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? The Apostle Paul in Acts 20 said, I, nor do, uh, But none of these things move me, these difficulties, nor do I count my life as dear to myself. Jesus in verse 25 says, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And the obvious answer is yes. I mean, think of the life he's given to us. It's more important than anything, especially eternal life. Do you realize that no matter how difficult things are, your, your, your passport's been stamped for glory if you're a Christian? 
You may go through some times that are difficult. My family is going through hard times. How I wished I was there to suffer with them. I'm not kidding. It drove me nuts. I wept because I'm like, I can't be there with them. This is a significant event in, in their lives, and I'm not there to share it with them. I really wanted to be there, especially with my mom, who's 78, and she was scared, and she's a tough woman. <laughs> if anybody knows my mom, she's a tough lady. You don't want to mess with my mama when she's angry. I don't even want to mess with her when she's angry. I learned through experience, but she's a great love. She loves intensely, and oh my goodness, but it was hard. But notice, Jesus says, look at the birds of the air. For they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And the obvious answer is yes. You know, farmers, they, they grow, they sow the seed, and they reap the harvest. They, they take the crop, and they store it into barns for shelter and also for dispensing as when they need. But birds don't do that. God feeds them as they need it. And yet, they are completely sustained by God. And nobody cares except for us in Penfield. We put those bird feeders out. And we have those you know, cardinals come in. And then the bluebirds chase them away. You know, and then the squirrels find it. God help you if they find it. But God takes care of them. Even if you didn't have the bird feeders. See, the, the animals in Penfield, I'm going off on a tangent here, but the birds and the animals in Penfield are very plump. They're, they're definitely American birds. They should probably have three shakes and a sensible meal. But aren't you of more value than they? Don't you find this interesting that God sees us more important than the animal kingdom? And yet groups say, well, animals, animals, you know, and, and, and don't get me wrong, I love animals, but, you know, you are more important than they are. In fact, God, when he created the sacrificial system, in order that you don't die, he put an animal in its place. An animal dies in your place. An innocent animal, the blood of an innocent animal, is taken instead of yours because you deserve death because the wages of sin is death. But he allowed that sacrifice, that substitutionary atonement to occur, foreshadowing, of course, when Jesus would substitute himself on our behalf. And because he's God, he did it once and for all. They don't need to keep doing it again. But Jesus was the ultimate lamb, and you are important to God, regardless of how gifted, how talented, how good-looking you are, or what you might have to offer him. He doesn't care about any of that. He loves you. It doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter the color of your skin. It doesn't matter what you do for a job and how wealthy or unwealthy you are. God loves you just the way you are. He does. He loves you. In fact, the Bible tells us that we are his workmanship. In Ephesians, we are his workmanship. The Greek word is poema. We are like his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So Jesus goes on, which of you, by worrying, could add one, one cubit to his stature? And the rhetorical question begs the answer, and it's obviously no one. You can't do anything. Which of you, by worrying, can add anything? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say in Solomon, in all of his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. The utter beauty of the outdoors, God's creation, it's stunning. 
The more you look at it under a microscope, the more questions you have to ask and the more stunning. You need something a little small, another, another magnifying glass to get in there even closer. And the closer and closer and closer you get down to the micro level will blow your mind. <laughs> it's almost like God is inviting, take a peek. Come and see what I've done. It's more, it's more fancy than anything you're making up at Cupertino. It's more fancy than anything Apple can make. Your eye even is more sophisticated than any camera that's ever been made. It can see in such great resolution and the peripheral vision, which you can never get into a camera lens. The colors, all the shading, all that stuff, cameras can't do it. Yes, God made your eye. It didn't evolve. He made it, and it's better than anything. And man's trying so hard. (laughs) Sorry, you're not going to make it. I love what it says in Jeremiah. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a hope and a future. That's God's love for you. Know that and take that to the bank. Make that a deposit in your heart. He goes on, he says, Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O ye of little faith? Seriously, has anyone here gone without food or clothing? I mean, raise your hand if, you, if you've gone without food or clothing. No. We've all been very well taken care of. In fact, we, we not only have food and clothing, which he promised in this chapter, for those, you know, if we seek him first, he's given us many more things that we didn't even ask for. But he's blessing us. Therefore, do not worry saying, what shall we eat, what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you have need of all things. God will take care of you. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself. It's true. Take today and worry about, don't even worry about today. Just Live today and deal with the issues of today. It doesn't mean that you can't plan for the future. It doesn't mean God wants you to be a good steward. Don't get me wrong. But you know what I'm talking about. You lay in bed at night and you're thinking about tomorrow. Don't worry about tomorrow. Pray and ask God to guide you and direct you and he'll take care of tomorrow. How many people are worrying way more than they should They're taking pills because they got an ulcer because they're worrying about this or worrying about that. They they no longer trust God. They're trusting in their own strength to get them through it. Can't you just let go and let God? Let's learn to let go and let God. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Notice, and all of these things will be added to you. How often have we taken God to task on that and tested him? I I wouldn't encourage testing God, but... He will be faithful to who he is and what he has said to us. He is a faithful God. And notice the priority. Those who are busy about God's business don't have to worry about any of these things. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about the things of its own. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Yes, plan ahead. Anticipate certain things. I mean, that's part of being a good steward. But don't worry. Do your best and then... Get out of the driver's seat and trust him. Yes, do your best. But don't worry in the process of doing your best. Just do your best. Do what's right. And then let go and let God do what he's going to do. 
So many times I've worried about events that I thought were going to take place tomorrow, and many times things have changed. Something had to be rescheduled. There was a cancellation here, an accident here that disturbed events from happening, and yet the night before I was so in a ball of knots thinking, oh, this thing's going to happen tomorrow, and I'm just not ready. I don't feel good. I remember one time I was in college, and I did a, an all-nighter because I was being a, a lazy individual. And we had a test the very next day, it was the final exam. And in order for you to be accepted into the class, you had to present your paper. Your paper was your ticket to get into class to take the final exam. And I was pulling an all-nighter. I was drinking coffee. I had IV lines stuck in, my, in both hands. Coffee is going through my veins. And I'm just like, my eyes, I'm starting to hallucinate. My eyes are wide open. You, you've been there if you've gone to college. <laughs> You're stressed out. You're, you're like, how am I going to make it through this exam? And then the professor canceled the class the next day. He sent out a thing saying, well, you know, something happened and I need to postpone it for a week from now. And can you imagine the, the joys of elation all over the college campus? All the kids like me who are staying up all night and now they've got a free pass. And the pressure is off. But see, I couldn't anticipate that, yet I worried myself sick to get something done, and it changed. Have you had that happen? You have. I know you all have. You've had things happen, you worry about it, and then it doesn't come to pass. Let me just read one final thing here, and then we will stop. Um, there was a, an article that was published back in 2015, and, um, and it's about 80, and the title of it is 85% of what we worry about never happens. Let me read this to you. It's a short little snippet. And in it, the article, it says, 500 years ago, Michel de Montaigne, I'm probably butchering the French name. I'm not French, sorry. My life has been filled, he says, with terrible misfortune, most of which never happened. Now there's a study that proves that this study link or looked into how many of our imagined calamities never materialize. In this study, subjects were asked to write down their worries over an extended period of time and then identify which of their imagined misfortunes did not actually happen. And lo and behold, it turns out that 85% of what subjects worried about never happened. And with the 15% that did happen, 79% of subjects discovered either that they could handle the difficulty better than expected or the difficulty taught them a lesson worth learning. This means that 97% of what you worry over is not much more than a fearful mind punishing you with exaggerations and misperceptions. <laughs> and I've noticed that to be true in my own life. Most of the stuff I worry about never comes to pass. But yet, I've worried about it. I've stressed over it. It's ruined my life. It's made everybody around me uptight because I'm uptight. And God's just saying, can't you just... Chill out, Rob. Can't you just take it easy? Why are you worrying about stuff you have no control over? Do your best and let God, and don't worry. It's hard for us to do because America, we are the biggest worry warts. And women in America are the biggest worry warts. Men are usually clueless in Seattle, but women are the ones who are the nesters. They plan everything. And there's nothing wrong with that. But don't worry. God has you covered. I want to end with one verse because I don't want to end with something that is uh, um, some article. I want to end with the word of God. 
That's a verse that we know all so well, but I'd encourage you to really take ownership of it. Proverbs 3, verse 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, but in all of your ways. Acknowledge him. If you, in all your ways, if you acknowledge him, then he, he will direct your paths. That sounds like a promise to me, doesn't it? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and with all your mind, with all your soul. Trust him and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, Jesus Christ, and he will direct your path. He will direct your paths. He's faithful. Isn't he faithful? Let's stand and pray. Father, we thank you for this passage. Lord, I thank you for the patience of my brothers and sisters as well. And Lord, we, just, uh, we thank you for your kindness toward us. And Lord, may we truly be thinking heavenly, thinking on, on, on things of, of our, our bank account in heaven rather than on the things down here that are just going to rust, they're going to be passed on to somebody who's not going to take care of it, it's going to fall apart and end up in a trash heap. Lord, help us to be focused on those things in the heavens, those things that you've called us to do, Lord. Bless my brothers and sisters today, encourage them, and bless them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.